0: Mysteries to Die For is brought to you by Down and Out Books, an imprint all due respect. This episode's featured release is Cleaning Up Finn by Sarah M. Chen. Life is a constant party for a restaurant manager, Finn Roos, when he seduces an underage woman on one of his booze cruises and loses her. Literally, it sets off a massive search involving the police, her parents, and a private investigator. Finn is an expert manipulator, but his endless lies only tighten the screws on himself, and his unsuspecting best friend finn scrambles to make things right which may be too much to ask from a guy who can't resist a hot babe and a stiff drink ask for cleaning up finn by sarah m chen from your local bookseller or look for it at your favorite online retailer
1: welcome to mysteries to die for I am T.G. Wolf and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own, others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no fakes, no breaks. retakes this is season 2 this season contains adaptations of the stories published in the 1800's these stories are some of the first to be considered mysteries for that reason this season is called the originators today's story is about knowing one's own self this is episode 10 blind an adaptation of the mysterious card and the mysterious card revealed by Cleveland Hoffett Moffat. All right, Jack, so today's story is set in New York City, and um, the location's not really critical to the tale. It really could happen anywhere. It's just where the characters lived. The story was published in 1895, and it's told in real time, which just means it's not set in the past or in the future. But our author, Cleveland moffat not hoffit gives us more of a location than most do. So we know it's in New York City, and there's a reference to 23rd Street and Broadway. But a major incident happens on Water Street. So the first reference puts us in Manhattan, But seeing as we've already been there this season, I'm dropping our pin on Water Street, Brooklyn, all but under the Brooklyn Bridge. I chose the average of the address of 55 Water Street, which is a restaurant called Cicconi's. And it's gotta be fantastic because it has a 4.3 rating with almost 1,400 reviews. So this delicious restaurant is only seven and a half hours to the Royal Observatory, home to the Prime Meridian in Greenwich, London. Uh, We were here in Manhattan in episode 7, so just three episodes ago, uh, with a mystery set in the 1880s, the story of the mystery missing seamstress, if you remember it, and a family secret. So this story really is about the mystery. The timing and setting are virtually irrelevant, which gives me nothing to talk about here, so we're going to move on to the reviews. There are very... Uh, a couple different versions on Goodreads, so I chose the one with Mysterious Card that had 57 ratings with an average of 3.44. The only five-star review I found said couldn't put it down exclamation point, my heart is racing double exclamation point, I need to know what it means double exclamation point. Here's a couple three-star reviews and these are more typical of, of what you found. Interesting plot, However, the intriguing story turned into an unbelievable, unrealistic one at the end. Although the author tried to give an explanation in the second part of the book, which is the mysterious card revealed, it became apparent that there was no way to explain the illogical plot of the first part another three-star review said two stories the mysterious card sets up a situation a man has a card in an unreadable language but everyone he know- he shows it to suddenly wants nothing more to do with him a neat bit of tension building with a cliffhanging conclusion unfortunately the sequel offers a solution so couched in pseudo mystic babble that it destroys all the entertainment value of the original tale so there we got it jack there's there's not a lot of uh, love on Goodreads for this story. Can you tell us about our author of the day.
0: Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Our author, Cleveland Mofay, was the son of Reverend, w- yeah, Reverend William Henry Mofay and Mary Cleveland Jane, Mary Jane Cleveland. If my parents named me that way, I'd be. I'm not reading that. (laughs) A mouthful, right? (laughs) Cleveland wasn't born in Cleveland. Oh, but I was.
1: (laughs) I thought that was kind of interesting.
0: (laughs) He was born in Boonville, New York, on April 27th, 1863. While he was being born, the Civil War was raging. I don't like that phrasing.
1: Well, then rephrase it. In the
0: middle of him being birthed, the Civil War was going on. Anywho, the Battle of Chancellorsville... Um, began uh, three days later, actually, April 30th, and this was in Spotsylvania County, Virginia, which is an awesome name for a country. County. (laughs) Anywho, the famous Lieutenant General Stonewall Jackson was wounded in this battle by friendly fire, and he died a week later. This has nothing to do with Cleveland Moffat, except the overlap with his birthday, so now you know about things you didn't care about. (laughs) Moffat, or Moffat, as you may, went to Yale College and they joined the New York Herald newspaper.
1: That would be Yale College for those who if
0: it's pronounced Mofe, it's pronounced Yale. Anywho, he was he joined the Herald newspaper in eighteen eighty seven and his first five years he spent in Europa and Asia. And he also worked as a writer and interviewer. That's Europe and Asia. Anyway, he eventually transitioned to editorial work, uh He may have been fluent in French, but we don't know, I guess, uh, because he translated a few books to English. He also wrote stories in magazines and gave lectures. Somewhere in all of that, he wrote his own fiction. The first short story listed for him is The Mysterious Card in 1895. The next year, he published The Mysterious Card Revealed. In this adaptation, we combine the two, just so you know.
1: All right, so we're nearly ready to begin our story. While Jack resets his microphone and warms up his fingers, I'll explain why we're doing these adaptations instead of reading them as they were written. Two reasons. The language from the 1800s is hard and can be difficult to understand with our modern ear. The speech cadence is different. And, oh my goodness, the commas and the semicolons. Uh, The second is that the style and length of many of these stories were not created for listening. With these adaptations, we keep the heart of the story, preserving the groundbreaking narrative, but update the packaging for easier digestion. Character names are in the show notes. And so now we are ready for blind. Jack, take us in. Chapter 1. The Doctor Is In An early day, then, is it, Sophie? I said to my secretary as I closed the door behind a very pregnant Mrs. McGee. It's too pretty a day to be inside, and I'm sure you can find better company than an old family doctor. Surely there is a young man in this city who wanted to take you on a turn through Central Park. Sophie blushed but she spoke not of this young man, but of business. There's one more appointment scheduled, Dr. Ridgeway. A new patient, a Mr. Burwell. Burwell? Richard Burwell, I asked. Yes, doctor, you know him then, she asked. No, of him, to be exact. He's a successful businessman and shares the fruits of his labors with the orphanage. Many foundlings have benefited from his generosity. Exactly on time, the door to my practice opened, and in walked Richard Burwell. He was a tall man, brought down to average height, but a stoop in his back. His hair was an unremarkable shade of brown, and his eyes were equally brown and so full of compassion I nearly felt compelled to confess my own troubles. Mr. Burwell, I said, it's a pleasure to meet your acquaintance at long last. Please, come into my exam room. You know of me, Dr. Ridgeway?" he asked, filing me into one of the two rooms reserved for patients. Yes, sir, I said. I call on St. Anthony's home when a need arises. Your work there is nothing less than life-saving. A weak smile graced his lips. I expect your work there is life-saving. I merely write checks and play with the children. I respected the man's humility and made no further attempt to argue my opinion. Instead, I asked, how can I help you today? Your reputation precedes you, doctor, he said. All of Manhattan talks of your competency and your insights. That's why I've come. I'd like you to do a full examination of me. Of course, I said, a simple matter. You expect me to find something? It would be easier if I know what I'm looking for. Mr. Burwell shook his head. It's better this way, he said, and began taking off his coat. I saw plainly enough that something was bothering the successful businessman and celebrated his fill-in- Philanthropist. I took my time, twice the amount as I usually dedicate to the mundane task. His heart beat strong and regular. His lungs were clear with no hint of a rattle. His bones were strong and his muscles smooth as beget a man of business. His tongue was a healthy pink with no spots. His eyes were... his eyes were clouded. You found something, doctor? Asked my patient. Perhaps, I said. Can you read the third line of the chart on the wall? Burwell did so with no trouble. I gave him several other tests, the results of which led to my diagnosis. Farsightedness, I said. Age-related, I should think. A pair of spectacles would fix you up. Burwell's hand covered mine. That's it, he asked. That's all you found? I sank onto my stool. I confess, Mr. Burwell, that your eyes have an unusual clouding. My first thought was cataracts, but as you passed the tests perfectly. Have your eyes always had that milky quality to them? My entire life, he said. There was sorrow in his voice, an element of sadness that was all but tangible. You thought I would find something else, I said. Tell me, what? Burwell opened his mouth as if to speak and then pulled back. Perhaps next time.
0: He's going to be dead next time.
1: Chapter 2. Behind Brown Eyes "'Did you hear the police found another body, doctor?' Mrs. Digby asked in a nasally voice as I attempted to listen to her lungs. "'I hadn't heard,' I said. "'If you could be quiet for a moment and just breathe.' "'The paper is calling him the Water Street Killer, "'as that's where the first body was found, on Water Street,' "'she said going on as if I hadn't spoken. "'Found another one last night, on Front Street, "'but I suppose that's close enough. "'Makes a body afraid to be out after dark.' She went on about the story that had all of Brooklyn looking over their shoulder. Her lungs could not have been filled with marbles, and I wouldn't have her-, her lungs could have been filled with marbles, and I wouldn't have heard them. For one thing was for certain: she was not lacking in breath capacity. I took the stethoscope from my ears. What do you think, Doctor?" she said. "I think you have a cold, Mrs. Digby. She pressed her hand to her chest. Is it the leeches for me then? Let's start with rest, I said. She looked disappointed. That hardly seems worth your fee. Shouldn't you at least give me a prescription or something? It only seems right. With practice patience, I did not respond. Instead, I scribbled on my pad and then handed, it, handed her the prescription. Mrs. Digby stared up at me. A pint of beef stew and 10 hours of sleep a day? I haven't got any beef. An old stew chicken is all. I imagine chicken soup will work as well on a cold, I said, o- opening my exam room. You should feel better in a few days. Mrs. Digby followed my lead, more out of habit than interest. "'No leeches, then?' she repeated. I shook my head, my gaze going to Sophie, who picked up my signal. I withdrew into the room to set it right while Sophie moved Mrs. Digby along. He said, "'No leeches!' Mrs. Digby again sounded as disappointed as a boy missing out on a suite. "'I heard,' Sophie said, the front door squeaking as she opened it. "'Maybe next time. I do hope you feel better.' Ah, Mr. Burwell, you're just on time. Because he's not dead yet. I mean, not dead. The front door squeaked closed, and then the door to the other examination room did the same. Sophie popped her head in the room I was in. Mr. Burwell is in room two. Thank you, Sophie, I said. Directly, I entered the other room and found my newest patient sitting on the examination table, his face buried in his hands. Mr. Burwell, tell me what brings you in. He lifted his face, squaring his shoulders as if, as if soldiering himself against a coming front. Doctor, last week you gave me a physical and pronounced me healthy. Did you not? Sank onto my stool, putting me eye level to the distressed patient. I did, I said. I ask you to do the same again, he said, and tell me if anything has changed. I took a moment to gather my thoughts. Mr. Burwell, I assure you, I was thorough in my assessment. He pulled his wallet from his overcoat and handed me my fee. I have every confidence you did, he said, otherwise I would not have come back. He held the bill out to me. There was no doubt the man was distressed. I will only accept your money and the obligation if you tell me what I am looking for. It was his turn to hesitate. His eyes closed solemnly, and he nodded. I grasped the bill between my fingers, and he opened his hand. I caught a glimpse of something most unusual. Before I could examine it further, he withdrew his hand and took a breath. Sometimes, not often, but every now and again, it feels as though, that is, I don't believe it to be true, but it is the feeling I get. Mr. Burwell, I am a physician, your physician. Whatever you tell me stays within these walls. I am on your side. I will not judge, but will work my hardest to resolve whatever it is that's wearing on you. My speech had the desired effect. Mr. Burwell relaxed as much as a stone carving could relax. Something, he began. It feels like someone is looking through my eyes. Fascinating, I said. My unguarded reaction appeared to set him even more at ease. Describe the situation. Describe the sensation. It it feels, he began. It feels like sharing opera glasses with someone. I can see... But it's difficult, as as though I'm fighting someone for control." "'Is your vision blurred?' I asked." "'Not blurred,' he said, but it can be hazy. It's as if I'm looking through a morning fog or the haze of London." "'I see, I see,' I said, but I didn't see. How often do you experience this sensation?" "'It varies,' he said. Sometimes it happens several times a week, and then it won't happen for a month. Lately, it's almost daily." I thoroughly examined his eyes. The pupils were clear as was the network behind it. The whites were as white as new fallen snow. There was no sign of cataracts or other conditions that would explain a fog. I sent down my instruments and took, took up his hand on the auspices of feeling for his pulse. How is your work? Have you been putting in long hours? I asked, turning his arms so that the palm was up. Are you sleeping well, eating well, drinking in moderation? I have not slept through the night for weeks, he admitted. I dream and, well, I don't remember them. I wake up exhausted. My eyes drifted to his hand and the odd mark under his middle finger. Two overlapping circles were carved in, a, carved in the line arching under the trunk of the finger. I brushed the mark and Mrs. Bur, Mr. Burwell startled. I swore he growled, low and threatening, like a dog warning off an intruder. When I looked at his face, though, I saw only tranquil, if not exhausted, brown eyes. I suspect you are suffering from exhaustion, Mr. Burwell. The sensation you are experiencing is your body telling you you need to rest. I'm going to prescribe a sleeping tonic. Come back on Monday and we'll see if there is improvement. Mr. Burwell smiled weakly. It was the first time I'd seen any expression aside from this sullen frown. Thank you, Dr. Ridgway. Thank you for believing me. I clapped him on the shoulder. Get some rest, Mr. Burwell. I am confident we will find a solution. Chapter 3. Ringing Saturn That evening, the next evening and every spare moment of the weekend, I spent emerged in my texts on palmistry. This is an ancient practice that teaches how to read the past, present, and future of a person from the lines on the palms of their hand. I was introduced at a young age. My dear aunt was a student and she took me as her apprentice at the ripe old age of 10. She was disappointed, truth be told, when I chose to become a physician, not seeing as I did that this was the other side of the same dice. It had been years since I opened the volumes. The responsibilities as husband, father, and doctor left precious time for passions. Still, it came back to me quickly. The pads just below the fingers were named for the ancient gods. Jupiter sat underneath the index finger, Saturn under the tallest finger, the sun was under the ring finger, Mercury under the pinky, and Venus at the base of the thumb. The unusual mark on Mr. Burwell's palm was on the mount of Saturn. Saturn was the center of balance, discipline, and independence. The lines across the palm from top to bottom were of the heart, head, and life. The fate line tended to run in the opposite direction, wrist to middle finger. Mr. Burwell had a line that encircled Saturn. It was not the heart line, but another, one that I didn't have and I had never seen in my exploration. Studying day and night, as I said, until the point my wife threatened to feed my dinner to the dog, I pored over the books. As I dressed for Sunday dinner with friends, I had come to the conclusion that the ringing of Saturn was an indicator that Mr. Burwell was troubled. I was so transfixed by the unusual birthmark that I failed to memorize the lines. An opportunity wasted for sure, and I would like to know if his fate line or lifeline had broken or had islands. Mr. Burwell's troubles were put from my mind once we arrived at the home of our hosts. The talk of the party was yet another murder on Water Street. The killer was getting bolder, this time leaving a cryptic message written in the blood of his victims. The noisiest busybodies of the group agreed the message was in an old French that police were working to understand. That That Monday afternoon, Mr. Burwell was back on my table. If possible, he looked worse. The draft wasn't strong enough, I said, looking at his bloodshot eyes. Did you sleep at all? I did, he said, and I dreamed. I was in an alley. The slate beneath my feet was wet and the tall walls created a brick canyon. Two buildings met at an angle, creating a pocket, so to speak. I was pressed into it, held there by an Egyptian woman. An Egyptian woman, I repeated. How did you know she was Egyptian? Burwell shrugged, shaking his head. I knew her in a way, and I was was afraid of her. He rubbed his hand down his arm as if to warm himself, his gaze on the corner of the floor. And why were you afraid of her, I pressed. Because she could see. Burwell raised his eyes to me. What does that mean? I didn't know. Describe her, I ordered. Burwell complied. Average height for a woman, willowy thin, graceful, She always is well-dressed, and her hair neatly arranged. Her hair is black, her skin dark, as if she never wore a hat in the sun. Her eyes are gold, and she never smiles. She never smiles, I said, echoing him again. She hates me, he confessed in a quiet voice. Of all the men I have met, Mr. Burwell was one of the least offensive. Hates you, I said, but... "'Why? You're a good businessman, a patron of the community. "'What causes she to hate you?' "'He shook his head, having no answer. "'I picked up his hand, turning it over to expose the palm. "'Have you had this mark your entire life?' "'Yes,' he said. "'I don't remember a time when it wasn't there.' "'Have you ever had your palm read, Mr. Burwell?' "'No, doctor, I don't believe in that hocus-pocus. "'I prefer to put my money in the pockets of men of science, like yourself.' not in the hands of charlatans i cleared my throat throat) well i know something of the ancient practice you see this line here this line rings saturn where the mark sits ancient texts refer to this line as an indicator of a troubled life mr burwell's blank face did the most unexpected thing it broke into tears Chapter 4, A Holiday in Paris I brought Burwell into my office and poured brandy from my private stock into two glasses. I handed him one and settled myself into the armchair across from him. I didn't say anything. I didn't need to. I had a son, Burwell began. He was our pride and joy. One night, some fiend broke into our house and he swallowed a healthy sip of brandy. He was strangled. Our babe died in his crib. My wife and I were asleep in our beds. The culprit was never found. I threw myself into my work, he said. My partner and I were making real progress. The night before we had make a key investment, we were robbed. It should have been impossible. Only the two of us knew what we were doing and knew we had the cash on hand. There was no choice but to move forward. By this time, my daughter was born. My wife threw her life into the girl, making her dressing room into the nursery. My partner and I gradually rebuilt what we had lost, but it took five years to do. Those sound like hard times, I said sympathetically. Those were the good times, he said, compared to what was to come. He finished off the brandy. Eight years ago, I went to Europe for business. My wife and daughter traveled with me. A working vacation i had gone on to paris leaving my wife and daughter in london with friends one evening i was sitting in a garden watching people come and go it was a popular spot a woman came toward me she was on the arm of a man i don't remember much about him he wore glasses i remember she was beautiful dark hair dark complexion magnificently gowned she had the most striking eyes I stood and went to the bar, like the woman you dreamed of, the Egyptian. Burwell held out out his glass for a refill. It was the first time I saw her, he said. I watched her sitting at the small table. The man's back was to me. Her gaze met mine once, and in her eyes I saw hatred. Hatred, I repeated, pouring the brandy, for appreciating a beautiful woman. No, he said. I don't think so. She gave me a look as if she knew me, but she couldn't. I had never spoken to her, much less done something to earn such a glare. She dug into her small bag, then said something to the gentleman. The pair stood and walked past me as they left the garden. She discreetly dropped a card on my table. It was white with three handwritten phrases. One was bottom left, one bottom center, and one bottom right. There was nothing above, and, while I do not speak or read French, I have seen enough of the language to recognize it. Did you find a translator, I asked, totally intrigued. Yes and no, he said. I asked another patron in the garden. She went from smiling to looking terrified and ran away. I returned to my hotel and asked the manager to translate. He was willing enough. After examining the card, though, he demanded I leave his hotel, immediately. He wouldn't translate the card, he just sent me away. I went down the street, checked into a new hotel, and and I made the same mistake. I had to move along again, this time I did not show the card. How curious, I said, returning the decanter to the bar. That is one word, he said, although not one I would choose. The next day I came across a police detective and asked him to translate. His examination of the card resulted in an escort to the Paris police station and an extended interrogation. I was only allowed to leave with the intervention of the American Consulate on the condition I leave the country immediately. I sent word to my wife and returned to New York. When she and my daughter returned, I told her the story. She was angry on my behalf until, at her request, I showed her the card. She left me. She could not disguise the anguish she felt, and she refused to speak of it. I have not seen her or my daughter since that day. The misfortune this good man had endured was unimaginable. My God, I said, did you lock that card away? If only I had, he said. I told my partner about the card, about Paris, about my wife. Surely he stood by you, I said. What did he do? He severed our relationship, he said, saying that he never wanted to see me again. I was dead to him. Drank down my brandy. Tell me you have locked the card away now. I did, he said. It's been in the home safe in my home safe for these last eight years. I wasn't sure what to think. The story was fantastic. Anxiety certainly could not be the cause of his misfortune. I thought to ask to see the card myself, but I doubted that he would let me tell me about this woman, the one you dream of. Burwell shifted in his chair. There's not much more to tell, he said. I see her face in my dreams. She's always beautiful, always cold. Her eyes, they always see. You used that phrase before, I said. She sees. What does it mean? Burwell stared at me. I could see it in his eyes. He didn't know. Chapter 5, Water Street's Next Victim. Burwell continued to come to my office twice a week. Most days, I saw him in the exam room. On his worst days, I saw him in my office. Insomnia plagued him. The few moments of sleep he was granted was filled with dreams better suited to a pose story. I tried every kind of draft the apothecary could craft to f- help him find peace. My patient, who was slowly becoming my friend, was an agony. The quiet of a Sunday morning breakfast was broken by feverish knocking on my front door. My butler escorted in a young man in Burwell's employ. Come quick doctor, Mr. Burwell's been shot. He's a goner without you. I shot from my chair, grabbed my bag, and then ripped my napkin from my collar as I ran out the door. The boy talked as we climbed in Burwell's carriage. The police had brought his master home, he'd been found on Water Street, shot. They were accusing him of being the Water Street killer. I found my patient surrounded by New York's finest. Burwell was on his bed, lying on his stomach. He'd been shot in the back. His head was turned so that he could see the door. Richard, I said, what in the hell happened to you? He was caught in the act, one of the cops said. He killed a lady and was shot while running away. I did not, Burwell said. His voice was weak with pain but adamant in his declaration. I had questions, many questions, but he needed a doctor, not an inquisitor. Instead, I went to work. I set my bag on the end of the bed and removed my jacket. I rolled up my sleeves and then withdrew a pair of shears. I cut through the fine wool of Burwell's jacket and then the soft cotton of his shirt. The bullet entered below the rib cage on the left side. There was no exit wound. I looked to the officer in charge. The bullet has lodged close to his heart. I can't remove it. I crouched near Burwell's head. What was I to say? Burwell, he seemed to know and relieved me of my burden. I've changed my will, he said, and I've named you my executor. Give my fortune away to charity, but do me the service of determining if I have harmed anyone. If I have, give the money to them with my sincerest regrets. I had no choice but to honor his dying wish. I stood then and faced the cops. The lead cop squatted until he was eye level with Burl. Why'd you do it? Why'd you kill all those innocent souls? Confess all, he said. Die with a clear conscience. I am innocent, Burwell stated clearly. What were you doing behind that bar, the cops said. What were you doing with that doxy? Burwell didn't have the answers the cops wanted. He denied every accusation, refuted every charge. He had been to a nearby mission and visited a woman dying of consumption. A woman from a mission was with him and would verify his story. The bullet must have done more damage than I expected. Richard fell into a deep sleep, and less than two hours later, his suffering had reached the end. He passed peacefully into the next life. All right, this is the part of the story where we pause to give you a chance to catch the killer. You know everything I know haven't held anything back it's my job to find the truth behind richard burwell's life and in doing so his killer all right jack where would you
0: start i feel like i don't know anything (laughs) i'm sorry i really thought it was going to get more into it and it was like actually that's all you get to know like that's everything so um i can't say i have any idea i have to say this
1: is a tricky one and and I don't know by modern standards whether this would be very satisfying. I said this was cutting edge at its time, and part of the reason it was cutting edge was because at the end of the first book, The Mysterious Card, um, he doesn't resolve it. Cleveland Moffat or Maffei, as you say, didn't resolve it. Uh, We meet our doctor in the real story in The Mysterious Card Revealed.
0: Whack. All right let's get started wait 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 one more note okay
1: so after this episode there's only one more left in season two in season three we are going to do adaptations of first in series so think sherlock holmes miss marple um, and hopefully we'll find some detectives that will be new to you make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so that you'll be able to catch season three as soon as it debuts
0: all right now i'm ready jack Okie dokie Five bucks says it's the daughter. It's it's some Rich boy's daughter. That's my money
1: Chapter six secrets of the Nile the rest of the day was consumed with police and attorneys. Indeed, Burwell made me the executor executor of his estate. I emptied his safe, sorting between money, contracts, and securities. Among the papers was an envelope with no address and Burwell's own seal on the back. Inside was an ordinary card. It was blank. There was nothing on it, not even the writing he described, but I still suspected that this was the cause of Burwell's mania I felt sympathy for the man. Insanity, indeed, had had a grip on him. While I sorted through the life of the dead man, the police were executing a nearly secured, newly secured warrant. They were convinced Burwell was the Water Street killer and determined to find the evidence. They left no pillow, mattress, or desk drawer unturned, but walked away empty-handed. Burwell had left orders for me. His small household staff was to receive an equivalent of a year's salary each. His daughter inherited his home with enough funds to pay the expenses for several years. His businesses and holdings were to be sold and the funds were to go to his philanthropic interests. The next day, Monday, I closed my practice early and returned to Burwell's home to further work on the liquidation of his businesses. As I walked along, a couple came toward me. Both had dark hair and were well-dressed. They paused in front of Burwell's home. The man looked up to the windows. The woman, though, lifted her face away from the home, to the sun. The man spoke to her. She nodded. Her expression seemed to be one of suspicion. As the distance between us closed, she lifted her gaze to mine. Her eyes were golden. Startled by the unusual nature of her beauty, I dropped the notebook I carried. The couple passed me as I fumbled to recover the tome. Book firmly in hand, I looked after the pair. The woman walked forward. The man looked over his shoulder at me, his expression one of complete contempt. key in the lock of the front door, I sought to push the odd encounter out of my mind. My subconscious did not allow it, and it pushed at me until... The woman! Looking up the street, the couple had reached the next crossing and was turning. I abandoned the key and the book, racing after them without regard for my appearance. At the corner, I flattened myself against the stone of a building, peeking around to see their position without giving away mine. They walked as without a care, neither looked in any direction other than forward. I followed, always watching from the cover of a building or a doorway, waiting until they turned the next corner. Just as I began to wonder if they had a destination in mind, they entered a storefront. The large front windows were filled with exotic decor for the home. Elegant gold letters announced this to be Secrets of the Nile, Yusuf and Halana Najee importers. "'Dr. Ridgway, is that you?' a voice said behind me. Jumping a foot in the air, I turned to find the plump form of Mrs. McGee. "'Indeed,' I said, composing myself, "'you are looking well, coming right along.' "'Right as rain,' as they say,' she stroked her protruding belly as mothers tend to do, "'what brings you to our corner of New York?' I indicated the shop across the street. I'm in the market for a gift for my wife, I lied. A patient recommended it, I lied. Oh, yes, she exclaimed, confirming the recommendation. Mr. and Miss Najee have the most wonderful collection. They came here some years ago. They had moved from Egypt to Paris to New York. Isn't that a life? I can't imagine the travel and, with Miss Najee being blind and all, her brother is a real saint, or whatever it is the Muslims call their saints. Miss Nagy, she is gifted with sight. Sight, I echoed, but you said she was blind. Well, she is, Mrs. McGee said. Blind is a bat when it comes to tables and chairs on the rest of our material world, but when it comes to the other world, well, I doubt there are many who see more than her. I see, I began, but Mrs. McGee's laughter cut me short. Too much of a science to believe, are you, Dr. Ridgway? Well, Miss Najee does not do readings or seances. She doesn't sell herself. That's how you know she's real. She won't take a penny from you. That is her brother's role. I hope you brought your checkbook. The Nile is a first-class store, if you understand my meaning. You have piqued my interest, Mrs. McGee. I tip my hat. Good day. I swiftly made my exit from my patient, dodging a wagon as I crossed the street. A bell announced my entry. I busied myself with an inspection of a collection for sale. Specimens ranged from large, ornately covered sideboards to delicate glass decor. Welcome to Secrets of the Nile. I am Mr. Naji, your. You, he said sharply. There is nothing here for you. The elegantly dressed man charged past me, opened the door, and glared. Out, he said. I did not move from my position. Mr. Naji, I am Dr. Ridgway. I know who you are, he snapped, and I have asked you to leave. Prove you are a gentleman, and do so. I took a step, but no more. Mr. Naji, do you know Mr. Richard Burwell? How dare you say the name of that. of that. Yusuf? Halani Naji stood in a doorway to an office, her gaze upon her brother as though she could see him. Bring Dr. Ridgway into the parlor. Coffee is ready. Chapter 7 A Killer Revealed Yusuf Naji shut the door with more force than necessary and took my elbow in the same manner. I was shepherded through the store into the back room where a comfortable parlor waited for me. Helana was seated on the couch while a young man poured coffee. Her brother sat next to her and I sank in the chair opposite. Thank you, Philip, Helani said when the coffee was poured. You have questions, she said, without looking at me. I studied her, assessing her reported blindness and, quote, sight. She had a competency about her that confuggled the rumor of her disability. And yet her gaze did not follow reaction in a typical manner. Your questions, she prompted again. You know Richard Burwell, I made it a statement, asserting rather than questioning. In a manner of speaking, she said in what manner of speaking i asked are you familiar with the term kulos i frowned at the unexpected question i am it's a word for a demon or similar that is correct she said when a demon is defeated his soul lives on a vile thing of pure evil once in every great while if an innocent soul does not enter the newly born babe quickly enough a kulos soul will push into the body The child and then the adult has two souls, one good, one bad. (laughs) I scoffed. Are you saying you think Richard Burwell had two souls? She gave a delicate shake of her head. I am saying I know so. We were in Paris when I heard a cry, a soul dying out for mercy. I knew that evil had committed a crime. Yusuf arrived to find the body of a street boy. The next evening, I felt the malignance, and Yusuf captured the kulos. I commanded it, and it confessed its sin. My concentration was broken by a noise, and the kulos took the opportunity to retreat, hiding behind the other soul. The following evening, she said, my brother and I were strolling through the garden. Mr. Burwell sat alone. He did not recognize either of us. The kulos so screened itself in some manner. I determined that the good soul may be the key to ending the kulos. I devised a plan to warn Mr. Burwell without alarming the Kulos. The card you dropped on his table, I said. But it was blank. How could it help? To an open mind, she said. The card reveals all. Mildly insulted, I attempted to disarm her. Richard Burwell died yesterday morning. At last, her brother said. We should like to see him, she said. Najee left the store in the care of his employee and we three rented a cab to carry us to Burwell's home. The keys and my notebook were as I left them. I unlocked the door and led them through the front hall to the office. It is here, I said. The card. See for yourself. It's blank. I retrieved the envelope from the discard pile and the car. from within it. It was the brother who accepted it. You are looking at it incorrectly, he said, turning it until I was nearly looking at the slim edge. As if, by magic, three hideous images appeared with a messy scroll beneath. The first strangled a baby. The second emptied a stave. The third plunged a knife into a woman's breast. Dear Lord! I dropped the card, feeling dirtier than if i bathed in a chamber pot. That is the Kulos and his crime, Helana said, drawn by its own hand. I remember Burwell telling me of his son and of the robbery that set his business back. Who was the woman? I asked. She died over 200 years ago. She was one of eight the Kulos killed that night, nuns he buried in the basement of their convent. Sick to my stomach, I went to Burwell's bar and poured his finest scotch. I don't understand, I said. Richard Burwell was a kind and generous man. He could not have killed his own son. That I know. Well, it was not Burwell So who killed his son, Helena said. It was his hands, under the control of the Kulos. We did our best to protect the innocent. Yusuf wrapped his arm around his sister's waist. We moved here to New York to counter the Kulos. It would go dormant, sometimes for months at a time, and then rise hungry. A tear slid over Helena's cheek. We were not as successful as I had hoped. I cocked my head in wonder and a chill ran through me. The Water Street Killer. It was Richard Burwell. Yusuf nodded solemnly. The Kulos was in control. Mr. Burwell had no idea what lived in him. We tried to show him what he was, but to no avail. He was blind to his nature. You didn't call him out, I said. You could have saved so many, I challenged. Who would have believed us, Yusuf countered. Working as we did, we limited the damage he caused. Until the other night, I arrived more quickly this time. It was you who shot him, I said. You who raised the alarm. Yusuf ex- exhaled loudly. I was too late to save the woman. The Kulos beat me again. I need to see him, Alana said. I need to know. I led the way into the parlor, to the table set with a coffin and Richard Burwell's body. I had watched the man die. I knew that he slipped peacefully into death, and yet what laid upon the table in that coffin was a vile creature. The face I knew was sagged and melted, contorted into a creature birthed in hell. We are too late again, she said, turning her head into her brother's chest. He has escaped this world. We have done our duty, Yusuf said to her. That was all we could do. With a heavy heart, I closed the coffin.
0: The reviews were correct
1: their views really were correct. So let's talk about this story. Does the logic work? Yeah, but you know, that's the great thing about magic and fantasy. As long as the author stays within the rules that they've created, there's going to seldom be a logic flaw. I mean, you know, unless it involves time travel, and then you can always find the flaws. I think there's some room to explore the amount of awareness that Burwell had for his other nature. In the original stories, Burwell seemed completely oblivious of the other soul. Um, there was no mention of memory gaps, and it seemed like if he did do the crimes, he would not walk away without, you know, some kind of souvenirs. Torn clothes, bruises, dirty, some physical sign he couldn't explain. And it also seemed to me that Richard Burwell would have had some ill effects from the Kulos Night Out. For this adaptation, I turned those into exhaustion and nightmares. Like many mysteries in this era, the lead in the original story was not so much the detective as the person that everyone spilled their guts to. I gave the doctor a name and I put him in the driver's seat, and I, but I was true to the resolution. It's both satisfying, we know that Burrell was the Water Street Killer and that the Seer's brother did kill him, but it's also wholly unsatisfying, especially as a mystery it did make me think about mental illness and split personalities and I'm kind of curious to do a little bit more research into what common thoughts were of the day. Um, This story was published in 1896 and I'm in the process of reading the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde which was written some ten or so years earlier to see if there's any parallels and so far not. It seems Dr. Jekyll was a self-made monster while Poor Mr. Richard Burwell was truly cursed. So that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about about us, and giving us a five-star review. Remember to hit that subscribe button, too. Of course, we'd love it if you became a member of our Body Bad Brigade by financially supporting the show this season with the one-time donation. Pay what you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website, TGWolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by TG Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. Blind was written by TG Wolf, adapted from The Mysterious Card and The Mysterious Card Revealed by Cleveland Moffat. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Join us in two weeks for the last episode of this season, episode 11, Natural Causes, An adaptation of The Notting Hill Mystery by Charles Felix. Jack, take us out.